Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Chapter 33 is kind of a more of an interesting chapter because it's it's pretty much uh, just a list of places that the children of Israel stopped at. They're different camping spots uh, during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, come and visited some friends that just came back from a vacation and they're like, man, we got to show you where we were. And they rip out their photographs and now it's all on the internet, right? You see it on Facebook or something, but you know, every place. And then we went here and we did this and everything. And they're all excited about it. And you're like, oh yeah, oh, Oh, cool. You know, you're trying to act like, well, that's really neat. Oh, that's a pretty picture. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to, but it's like, you're, you're, you weren't there. So it's like, well, I, I can't express, you know, I don't experience the same thrill that you have. Uh, you know, pictures never tell the story, do they? You take, you see a scene, you go, man, that's an awesome picture. You take it and you go, man, this is great. And then you look at it later, you go, oh, well, it's kind of pretty, pretty mediocre, you know? And so, um, Anyways, some people are gifted with some real good pictures, so they, they, there's some really pretty ones out there. But this is chapters kind of like that. We're sitting here hearing all these different places that the children of Israel camped, and we're like, mm, okay, you know. But for Moses and for the children of Israel, it brings back memories for them. And God's the one that said, I want you to record this. And so it means something to God. All these places mean something to God. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning, this travelogue of their wilderness wandering from the time that they left Egypt. So beginning with chapter 33, verse 1. These are the journeys of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, I'm scared. <laughs> these are the journeys. Wow. <laughs> TV generation. Uh, these are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the, commands of the, at the command of the Lord. And these are the journeys according to their starting points. They departed from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. So this is the first place, uh, well actually, let me finish verse 4. For the Egyptians were burying, or burying, I guess, depends on how you pronounce it, I always say bury, uh, the children... Uh, for the Egyptians were burying uh, all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. So it's interesting here. Uh, they went out on the day after uh, Passover. And this is not like the Passover celebration like, you know, the Jews do now. This was the Passover when the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the children of Israel. And, and, and uh, they were spared. Uh, from the angel of death during that time, the firstborn of all the children. But it says there in verse 4, which is really interesting, it says, uh, <clears throat> actually, verse 3, the end of verse 3, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. You know, that is a huge statement. That's a big statement if you think about it. Why do I say that's a big statement? Because, listen, these guys were slaves, they were not trained warriors. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't do an insurrection, you know. They didn't do a rebellion. Um, they had no chariots. They had no war horses. They were slaves. And yet, 
in the face of the mightiest nation, because Egypt was the mightiest nation on the earth at that time, in the face of the mightiest nation in the Middle East, they go out in plain sight of all their enemies with boldness. King James Version says with a high, with a high hand, almost like, yeah, right on, you know. Um, that's the implication, but it means boldness. Psalm 105 verse 38 says, Egypt was glad when they departed for the fear of them had fallen upon them. They were afraid of the children of Israel because of what God had done, not because they were slaves or, you know, they were like a mighty people, it's what God had done for them. Back in Exodus chapter 11, the Lord God was speaking to Moses and he says, speak now in the hearing of the children, excuse me, in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. It's interesting, uh, uh, you know, nowadays they have the, uh, this, this kind of a movement where uh, reparations, you know, you're familiar with the term reparations, you know, our, our people have been mistreated and so, you know, we need reparations. Um, when that was just starting to become a popular phrase, reparations, there were people in Egypt that filed a lawsuit against Israel based on this passage of scripture that I just quoted in Exodus 11. They wanted reparations because it said, hey, the children of Israel took all the gold from Egypt. And they're like, we want it back. <laughs> so interesting, everybody wants their piece of the, uh, the pie, I guess. But, um, but so God told the children of Israel, hey, ask from your neighbors gold and silver. And God basically paid them for their 400 years or so of being a slave, but not getting paid as you know, slave labor. They got their pay in the end. In fact, the children of Israel were so revered among the people, the Egyptian people, in Exodus 12, 38, we're told that a mixed multitude went out with the children of Israel when they left. There are people who are like, man, we want to go where they're going because God's with them, man. They're blessed. We want to be where they're at. And so a mixed multitude went up with them. In Psalm 105, verse 36, it says, speaking of God, he also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. So God was just brought Egypt to, his, to their knees. And so it says, also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. When we went through the book of Exodus, we talked uh, one of the chapters, or a couple of the chapters dealing with the plagues of Egypt. We kind of took a look at it, and I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit. But those, those plagues were not just like, well, well, we'll decide to turn water to blood, or, you know, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that, flies and stuff. There was a significance to each one of those plagues that the, that the Lord God uh, uh, placed upon Egypt. It attacked the gods, the idols that the children of Israel worshipped. So when the water turned to blood, when the Nile River was changed to blood, that was uh, really an attack on their god, Hapi, or Happy. It wasn't a happy god at that point, but Happy, H-A-P-I. He's the god of the Nile, the bringer of fertility. He was important, uh, 
it was important uh, for the Nile's very existence, excuse me, Egypt's very existence. So they worshiped the Nile River, and here they had a, an idol that they named that was the god of the Nile. And so the water turning to blood, it was like an attack on their god of the Nile. The frogs, there was a god that they worshiped called Heket. It was the frog-headed goddess of fruitfulness. Try to say that with crackers in your mouth, you know? The, the frog-headed frog goddess of fruitfulness. Um, the the, the uh, plague of the flies, they worshiped a god named Keeper or Keper in the form of a beetle symbolizing the daily cycle of the sun across the sky. Uh, the plague on the cattle, they had several deities that they worshiped that were in the forms of uh, cattle. Uh, Hathor or Hathor was a cow-headed goddess or cow-shaped goddess with human head adorned with horns. Kenum was a ram-headed god. Amon was a ram-headed king of gods and patron of the pharaohs. And you may have heard of this one before. Isis was queen of the gods who wears cow or ram horns. So it was a, an attack on those deities. The hail, the thunder, and the lightning was the attack on the deity that they worship by the name of Newt or Nut. It wasn't Newt Gidrich, but Newt. Um, it was the sky goddess. He was a nut. The sky goddess and protector of the dead. The locusts, they actually had a deity that was named Serapia, who was the protector of locusts. And so that deity was uh, God, uh, you know, attacked or passed judgment on that deity. Uh, the darkness that swept over the land, the they worshiped the god Ra, which was actually, um, it was the sun personified. And uh, he was the king of the gods and the father of mankind. And so that was like their supreme god. And so the darkness over the land uh, was a judgment on Ra. Uh, the death of the firstborn even. They had a goddess named Tart. And she was the goddess of maternity who presided over childbirth and was a protective household deity. So over all of these Hebrew, uh, Egyptian deities, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was greater than all of them. And so this had, a, it just brought Egypt to their knees. And so the children of Israel, it's a big statement. They went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. Verse 5. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramesses and camped at Sukkot. They departed from Sukkot and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hairoth, which is east of Baal-Zephon, and they camped near Migdal. They departed from before uh, Hairoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness." There's another big statement there. They pass through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. We know what they're talking about, right? You've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Remember when the, the, the Red Sea parted there and Moses, you know, stick a stuck out and his staff out and the sea passed and the children of Israel passed through. The name of that town where they were at, it wasn't a town, but the name of the place where they were at was called Piharoth, which means mouth of the gorges. I don't know if you've ever been in a gorge before. Uh, when I was a youngster, we would go up to uh, uh, Canada and we'd go to Edmonton and we'd visit my family in the summertime. I loved it. There was one place I liked to go hiking through. It was a gorge. And a gorge is kind of like, a, it's basically like a ravine, basically. And you're walking through and there's steep hills on both sides and there's just a path for you to go through. And I remember that was kind of one of the highlights of doing that, especially one particular trip. I remember having so much fun doing that. Well, this is where they were at. They were at a place 
where they basically were, were hemmed in. There was tall hills or mountains on the sides, the Red Sea in front of them. That was, it was like just a narrow passageway. And it's interesting because in Exodus 14, the Lord God told Moses this in Exodus 14 verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihararoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. And this is why. Verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God says, I want them to be in that place really between a rock and a hard place. I want them to be in the mouth of that gorge. Pharaoh's going to think, aha, I've got them. And, and, and then God's going to prove himself mighty over them. You know, as much as you and I don't like being in dire straits, because that's what, really what this is. We don't like being, have you ever been in between a rock and a hard place? It's like there's no good choice in the situation you're at. You feel like you're in the mouth of the gorge, now that you don't understand what that pihiroth means. We don't like to be in those places. But it, listen, it's in those places where we experience God's mercy and his deliverance the most. It's in those places where you're going to see God part the Red Sea, your, whatever it is that you're facing. And the only way to experience that kind of a miraculous thing is to be in that kind of a rock and a hard place and stuff. So we don't like it, but it's a good place because you're not going to experience God's mighty hand any other place. And so the children of Israel, man, this is a big thing. God parted the Red Sea. And I could just say, do you remember when I did that? You know, remember Piharoth? And they're like, oh, yeah. And then they remember, yeah, but God led us through there. Well, continuing on here, second half of verse 8. We went three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Merah. Here's another place that they would remember. Merah. Listen, they went three days after they had been delivered. They had passed through the children or passed through the Red Sea. Uh, three days, and they're not they're thirsty. There's not many wa much water. There's two million, approximately two million of the children of Israel going through the desert. They're thirsty. And as they're, you can imagine, as they're approaching Merah, someone says, hey, there's a spring there. And they're like, whoa, water, finally. And they get there and they're expecting sweet water, but guess what? It was bitter water. And so they couldn't drink it. And you know the story. The children of Israel complained, but it's not mentioned here. They, they complain. And what did the Lord tell Moses? Moses, take a tree and cast this tree into the water, and the water will made, be made sweet. And so Moses did that, and the water became sweet. What a beautiful picture. A tree, of course, in the Bible. I always think of the cross of Christ. You know, for you and I, Sometimes we're in a situation or we're interacting with a person and it kind of leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. Maybe they've done something that's made you bitter or maybe, uh, you know, the situation you're in is just a bitter situation. Here's a remedy for you. You want to make that situation sweet? Apply the cross to it. What do I mean by that? Well, if it's a person that's made you bitter, apply the cross. Think of grace. Jesus Christ died for that person just like he died for you. 
Have you ever been in a situation where it's been like hard to forgive someone? You're hanging on to something. It's just, man, I can't forgive them. Uh, they've really offended me or whatever. Man, just think about it. We've all offended a holy God, and Jesus Christ forgave us. Why can't we forgive our brothers or our sisters that have made us bitter? They've sinned against us in any way. So apply grace to someone if it's, if it's a person. If it's a situation, it's not a person, same thing. Apply the cross to your situation. Let me quote this, Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So you've got a bitter situation. Think about Jesus Christ and what he endured. And he did it with joy. So don't get discouraged. Think about Christ. Apply the cross to your situation. And that'll make that bitter situation sweet. Verse 9. They moved from Merah and, camp, uh, and came to Elam. At Elam were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there. They moved from Elam, verse 10, encamped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. That Sin is like Sinai, so it's, you know, it's not Sin, you know, what we think of Sin in the Bible. It's a name of a place. They camped in the wilderness of Sin. This would bring back a memory for the children of Israel here also, because this is where the Lord started providing manna on a daily basis when they reached the wilderness of Sin. He provided it faithfully each day. And it was enough food for two million people every single day to eat for the next 40 years. It never stopped their entire time that they were going through uh, the, the wilderness. Talk about faithfulness. Psalm 78, verse 23 through 25 says this, it describes it. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat, and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ain't angels' food. He sent them food to the full. It was just a miraculous deliver, a miraculous prov, uh, providing of food every single day was the manna. Verse 12. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. They departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim, or Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. This was the place where God told Moses, take a stick, take your staff and strike the rock. And he struck the rock and the water came gushing out of the rock enough for the people to drink. That was at this place at Rephidim. Paul comments on it, or does a commentary on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He talks about that water that came from the rock. He says, all drank, he's speaking of the children of Israel, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And what Paul is doing is the rabbis had a kind of a, a tradition where they said that Israel uh, was supplied by water by the same rock the entire time through their wandering in the wilderness and, and that this rock followed them. So this was a Hebrew uh, uh, 
tradition, a rabbinical tradition. So Paul is saying, yeah, that rock did follow him. And guess what? It was Jesus Christ. Now, whether the rock physically followed them or the stream of water, there was always a stream of water. Uh, we don't really know. There's a debate about that. But there's the point that Paul brings up, and that's the point is this. Jesus was with them the entire time in the wilderness. And that should be an encouragement for you and I. We're going through a dry time. You're going through a, a tough time where it seems like you're just wandering around in your life right now. I tell you what, Jesus Christ is with you wherever you're at. And nothing is insignificant in God's economy. Remember that too. Well, verse 15, they departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. So this would have been at the base of Mount Sinai. We find out in, past, in other scriptures that kind of deal with the same passage. It took them three months to the day that they left Egypt to get to this point here, the wilderness of Sinai at the base of Mount Sinai. So it was three months from where we just started their journey to where they are now. But now they're going to stay at the base of Mount Sinai for about 11 months. And while they're there, the Lord God is going to provide the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. He's going to give them the law of Moses. He's going to give them instructions for the priests, for the offerings, for the tabernacle. They're going to, they're going to have the instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant where, the, where God would dwell among them. And so it was such an important time where, where they, God's basically introducing himself to the children of Israel. They're getting to know God and his heart about things. Verse 16 they uh, moved from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hatava. They departed from Kibroth Hatava and camped at Hazaroth. They departed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. So this is kind of interesting because it says that they departed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. But if we go to Numbers, and you don't have to turn there, but if you go to Numbers chapter 12, it says this in verse 16, And afterward the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. And if you were to continue reading in Numbers chapter 12, this is the point where the children of Israel, where, where, where Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land, into Canaan, to spy it out and to find out you know, what it's like and stuff and to bring a report back to the children of Israel. And you guys know the story. Twelve spies went in, twelve returned. Ten of them said, man, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of fruit and everything, but man, the giants are huge and, and we just can't. We're, we're like grasshoppers. We grasshoppers in their sight, you know. And uh, except for Caleb and Joshua, they're like, yeah, but God will give us the victory. It was at this point. So what's interesting is that here in this account, Numbers 33, verse 18, they departed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. And when I read that, I'm like, man, uh, I'm getting confused here. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on here because we have this other account saying that they came to the wilderness of Pran and that's when the spies were sent out. Well, it's believed that Rithma is near to or may even be another name for Kadesh Barnea. Why do I bring this up? Who cares, right? What's the significance about it? Because from verse 18 on, all of these places that are named 
were named after the children of Israel, after God said, okay, you don't trust me, you're going to wander the, for another 38 years. You're going to wander till this entire generation dies, except for Joshua and Caleb in the wilderness. And so all these places that we're going to start reading right now, they're all these places where the children of Israel wandered around until verse 36. So the, the, from verse 18 to verse 36, that comprises 38 years. We had three months coming up to Mount Sinai, and then we had 11 months out Sinai. Now it's 38 years of all the different places that, I, that, we, went to, that we go to. You know, in naming every single one of these places in chapter 33, it reminds us, of course it reminds the children of Israel, of God's power. No matter how he delivered the children of Israel with a mighty hand. They were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them in a mighty way. It reminded them of God's protection, right? You come to the, to the edge of the, part of the Red Sea, and, and God destroyed Pharaoh and, and his army and allowed the children of Israel to pass through. It reminded them of God's provision. Man, the manna in the wilderness, 40 years faithfully. The water in the wilderness, 40 years faithfully. faithfully. God led them with the cloud during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. I mean, God was faithful that entire time. It reminds us of God's provision. You know, it's good for you and I sometimes to keep track of those things, those areas in our lives. Or maybe we came to it where we're between a rock and a hard place. And man, God delivered me in that, that place. I want to keep track of that. I want to memorialize that in some way. Remember it. Why? Because you're going to come up against another gorge. Or you're going to come up against another uh, dire strait. You're going to be in a place where it's like, man, what do I do now? And then you go, you know what? Man, God delivered me that last time. He's going to do it again. I'm going to trust him. So it's good to remember those things. You know, it's interesting in all these places that are mentioned here, there's one thing that the Lord doesn't mention. I don't know if you noticed it. He talks about Merah. He talks about Rephidim. He talks about all these different places. And when you, if you go back into the accounts of when they were traveling through these places, we read about something, but God doesn't mention it here. What, is any, what does he not mention? He doesn't mention their rebellion, their complaining, they're grumbling. He doesn't mention their unfaithfulness. Oh, what a blessing. That's huge too. I like what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 9 through 21. He says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against his, all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you, knew, uh, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone in the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. 
They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In the midst of their grumbling and complaining and all these places where they did fail, God was still faithful to them. And God doesn't even bring it up in this chapter. Remember, you know, he doesn't say, hey, do you remember when you were at Kibroth Hatavah? And that name means the graves of lust. Do you remember when you guys blew it there? Do you remember when you didn't trust me? I mean, God doesn't do that. What a beautiful thing, man. I, I hope you're thankful. I know I am thankful that God doesn't remember my failings. And he doesn't bring them up over and over and over again. Listen, do you want to be a mature believer in Jesus Christ this morning? Do you want to be godly? Do you want to be God-like? Do you want to be Christ-like? Then do this. Let go. Let go. Let go of people's failures. And don't keep, uh, keep a record of the wrongs that they've committed against you or they've offended you or they've hurt you. Let go. If you want to be godly, if you want to be mature, let go of those things. Let go of the bitterness. Apply the cross to those situations. And that's what God's like. God doesn't hold, doesn't remind us of our failings. Why do we have to remind others or hang on to things? We've got to let go if we want to be mature. You know, God told Moses to record all these places. He knows every place where they've been. And some of these stopping places in the next few verses, we're just going to read through them and then we're going to rattle them off. And they went to there and then they went here and there and there. They mean nothing to me. I looked up in the commentaries. Uh, somebody's, some of these scholars got to know. You know, they basically say is this was a stopping place in their wilderness wandering, possibly, and they name some place. That's all they know because nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's insignificant to you and I, but to God, it was significant that he had them record it. You see, the point I'm trying to get across is God knows where you're at today. You might think I'm in a significant situation or, you know, I'm in a kind of a, I'm in a wandering place. I just don't know. God knows where you're at right now. And nothing is insignificant in God's economy. Nothing is. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, it says, It is 11 days journey from Horeb, which is another name of Mount Sinai, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, it's, it's about 11 days journey. That's not saying that they took 11 days, but that's how far. If you were to just walk, it would take you 11 days to get there. They spent 38 years covering that same ground. They were busy. I mean, they would camp at one spot, set up camp, 
you know, they'd be there for a while until the clouds start moving. And then it's like, okay, tear up our camp and start following. They were busy going back and forth as the Lord led them. Lots of activity, but not a lot of progress. Why? Because of unbelief. Because they didn't trust the Lord God. It didn't have to be that way if they had only trusted the Lord when the spies came back from their report of the promised land. If they had just entered Canaan the first time when they had that opportunity, they wouldn't have had to wander for 38 years. I wonder sometimes in my life, man, how, many, how, many, how much time have I wasted because of my unbelief? I didn't trust the Lord in a situation, and so here I am. Going, I'm busy, but I'm not making any progress. The thing about this chapter, and it's amazing to me, God doesn't rub it in their faces. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, remember that time? Remember this? You know, we do that sometimes, don't we? We're talking to someone, remember when you said that? You know, or remember when you did that? God doesn't do that. I love that. So let's look at these places. Verse 19. They departed from Rithma and camped at Rimon Perez. They departed from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. They moved from Libna and camped at Rissa. They journeyed from Rissa and camped at Kehelathaha, whatever. <laughs> they went from that place and camped at Mount Shefer. They moved from Mount Shefer and camped at Herida. They moved from Herida and camped at Machaloth. They moved from Machaloth and camped at Tehath. They departed from Tehath and camped at Terah. They moved from Terah and camped at Mithka. They went from Mithka and camped at Hashmona. They departed from Hashmona and camped at Moseroth. They departed from Moseroth and camped at Ben-Ajakin. They moved from Ben-Ajakin and camped at Hor-Hagadad. They went from Hor-Hagadad and camped at Jotbatha. They moved from Jotbatha and camped at Ebrona. They departed from Ebrona and camped at Ezion-Geber. They moved from Ezion-Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. They moved from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Egypt, uh, Edom. Excuse me. Then, verse 38, Then Aaron, uh, the high priest, went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after, after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the first month. Fifth month, excuse me. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They departed from Zalmona and camped at Punon. They departed from Punon and camped at Oboth. They departed from Oboth and camped at Aij Abaram at the border of Moab. They departed from Aijim and camped at Debon Gad. They moved from Debon Gad and camped at Almon Diblatham. They moved from Almon Diblatham and camped in the mountains of Abraham before Nebo. They departed from the mountains of Abraham and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as uh, the Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. And we've kind of talked about all these, some of these places, not, not most of them we didn't, but we've talked about some of these already and what happened at a couple different places. Verse 50. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab, but, and so this is 38 years later. Now when the, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, 
Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. What's kind of cool about this, or really cool about this, is verse 50. God says this to the children of Israel, when you cross, uh, actually it's verse 51, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan. He didn't say if you cross. You know, if you guys are really good, if you don't blow it anymore, you know, if you really trust me, he says when. I love that. I love that. Because it reminds me of how Jesus Christ looks at you and I. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I love how Jesus doesn't look at me in my, in my you know, the gunk. He looks at me in my completed state. He sees the end product. Some people have a knack for doing that. You know, they can, they can look at a project and, you know, sometimes I, I come in and I see this and I just, what I see is right in front of me. Man, this is a mess and that's a mess. And man, I don't know, you know, I, I get focused on some small thing. And some people that I know, they can look at it and go, I see the end result. And they, 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 that's like, yeah, there's this stuff here, but man, we'll get to that. You know, they see the end result. That's a gift. And that's the way God looks at us. He doesn't look at the gunk like, oh, look at all this. He looks at the end result, the finished product. I like that. So he says, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, and then he says you're to drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. And we've talked about this before, but the Canaanites were a very, very wicked people. And when God had prophesied and spoke to Abraham, saying, I'm going to give you this land, he basically said, uh, but your, you know, your descendants are going to be sojourners for 400 years. And he said, basically, until the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete, They're the Canaanites were the Amorites, until their iniquity was complete. God had given them 400 years to repent, 400 years uh, to repent and now it was time for their judgment and so God says you're gonna you're gonna displace these people and if you look the archaeologists have, have, have discovered Canaanite stuff and uh, they were a very very wicked wicked people they were very it's just terrible some of the things that they've discovered that the Canaanites did and so not only were they to destroy the Canaanites and drive them out of the land, but they were also to destroy all of the Canaanite stuff that they worshipped, all their engraved stones, their molded images. They were to demolish all their high places. Why? Because if they didn't do that and they went into the land, God knows you're going to be tempted by those same things. And so just get that stuff out of there. to have nothing to do with it. It was funny when we went to... Uh, to uh, Israel, and uh, we went to uh, a place to a museum, and uh, I forgot the name of the town it was at, but anyways, we were there at this museum, and they had Canaanite idols there that they had unearthed through their, you know, archaeological digs, and I always think of the idols like, you know, um, uh, Indiana Jones, you know, there's like this big idol, you know, standing on a big stone, and you know, flames around stuff. These idols, one of them they had was like, it was like this big. I mean, it was smaller. It was just like a little figurine, you know. Um, and the thing is, they worshiped that stuff. 
And you go, well, this seems so small, so insignificant. Why would they worship that? But the thing is, God knows. Hey, even the small things that you think are insignificant, man, they can be a, they can be a detriment in your life. And so God says, get rid of all that stuff. Verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those uh, whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So the warning, if you don't completely eradicate the Canaanites or the things that they worship, you're going to struggle in your obedience to me. And if you look in the history of what happened later on as they came in to possess the land, it's exactly what happened. And then God even warns them and says, if you continue in the same sins of the Canaanites, I'll expel you from the land. And that's exactly what happened as well. They developed, they, they, they adopted the, the worship of Molech, for example. They worshiped all these different idols, the Baals and stuff that the Canaanites worshiped. And God sent prophet after prophet for hundreds of years to tell the children of Israel to repent. And they didn't repent, so God expelled them during the Assyrian and Babylonian exile. So now we get to chapter 34. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the salt sea. Your border shall turn uh, from the southern side of the ascent of Akarabim and continue to Zin and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border and this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your border line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. And then the, direct, then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron and it shall end at Hazar Enan. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Enan to Shepham. The border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of uh, the Sea of Chinnereth. That's the Sea of Galilee, by the way. If the border, excuse me, verse 12, the border shall go down along the Jordan and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance. And the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan across from Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. So we get this boundaries, the borders. This is what the land, this is the land that I'm giving you, God says to Moses. Mark out, and he gives them all these, these places, these borders. 
one of the things that might strike you. He says, your border is going to be the west, your west border is going to be at the sea, talking about the Mediterranean. And you look at Israel's history, and what was their southern, what was their western border? The land of the Philistines. They never got all the way to the sea. In fact, Israel was never as big as these boundaries that God says, I'm giving to you. It's never been, even to this day. In fact, even during the time of David and Solomon, Israel was never as big as these boundaries. And here's the point. It was available to them. God says, I'm giving you this. But they didn't take full advantage of the borders God had carved out for them. And I think about for you and I, you know, there's so much that's available to us. And I wonder, man, what are we missing out on? Ephesians 3.20, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We can't even think of everything that God has for us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And again, I wonder, how much is there for us that we just don't take advantage of? Well, back in chapter 33, verse uh, 53, God tells them, he says, you shall dispossess, dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And so what basically God's saying is, hey, this land is yours. Or don't think of the song, this land is your land, this land is my land. No, God says, this land is your land, and here's all the boundaries of it, but you have to take possession of it. There's something for you to do, and that's to go in and possess it. And that same principle is a spiritual principle that's true for you and I. I'm going to read something to you out of Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So we know that Jesus Christ died for our sins, right? Verse 11 says this, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. So what God's saying, what Paul is saying, consider yourself a person in whom sin does not reign. That's available for us. 
However, you got to do something. And what's that? Don't let sin reign in you. There's something for us to do. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, Paul says this, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. There's another thing for us to take advantage of. You have, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. So it's not if, it says if, but it means since. Since we live in the Spirit, that's available to us. Now we've got to do something. We've got to possess it. So what do we do? Walk in the Spirit. It's available. We just got to do it. Romans 12, verse 8, 6 through 8, excuse me. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. It's interesting, you know, the children of Israel, they've given all these boundaries that we just read, and they're all different for the children of Israel based on the size of their tribes. They have different portions. And so, too, you and I, we've been given different gifts, different, different spiritual gifts. They're available for us. We've been given them. It's yours, God says. But there's something we have to do. That's to use them. So this principle, you know, the, the children of Israel, they didn't take advantage of it. And so I got to wonder, man, what are we missing out on? Because we're not taking advantage of what God has for each one of us. Verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for, their, for the inheritance. These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah. Caleb the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel the son of uh, Amahad. From the tribe of Benjamin, Eli, uh, Eladad the son of Chislon. A leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Bucky the son of Jogli. From the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak, a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Paltiel, the son of Azan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahidad, the son of Shalomai, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Pedahel, the son of Amahad. These are the ones uh, the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. So we get to the end of this passage of Scripture. We know that Moses won't be entering the promised land because of sin. He misrepresented God. We know that, right? Joshua is going to take his place. Aaron the priest, he already died. His son Eleazar is going to take his place. Miriam died. Now, we don't know who took her place and the role that she had. But listen, that whole generation except Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness. None of them are going into the promised land. And so here God appoints men along with Caleb and Joshua because they were faithful from each tribe to help in the division of the promised land. These guys would have been younger. Joshua and Caleb would have been the old guys in that group. All those other guys was the next generation. 
the children of those that died in the wilderness. They're younger men. And what's interesting, not all of them, but a large majority of their names, if you look at their names, they have El or Eli in the name. El is the Hebrew name for God. So their parents, you know, there was some kind of a significance that God, that the, the parents named them with the name of God. And, it, you know, doesn't mean that they were godly, but a lot of times in the Bible, when you read someone's name, it, it usually their character goes along with their name. And so these quite possibly were godly men that Jesus, or that God had chosen for the children of Israel. God's faithful to his promise, even despite Israel's sin and their unfaithfulness. God is going to, you know, this, that generation died because of disbelief, but God is still going to bring the children of Israel into the promised land because he promised it to Abraham. So God's will is still going to be accomplished, but guess what? He raised up others to lead them into the land. God has a plan and a purpose for your and my generation. And I, I just, I just want to tell us, and just in closing, let's not fail to possess what the Lord has for each of us. I, I, when I come across this, I was reminded of Mordecai's words to Esther. It's in the book of Esther, but Mordecai was his uncle. Maybe it was his cousin, whatever. And at one point, Mordecai says this to Esther. Esther has a choice to make. She can speak before her husband, the king, and, and spare the children of Israel, the, the Hebrew people, or she could remain silent because he doesn't know that she's a Hebrew also. So she has a choice to make. And in Esther 4.14, Mordecai says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, I, I think about what's happened recently in, in, in the U.S. history as well. Uh, I mean, specifically, I think we're entering into a very unique period of history for the U.S. I think things are going to start changing very rapidly. But guess what? God still has a will for this generation. God still has a plan. You know what God's will is for this generation? Peter says it. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will. And we're the generation, we can go in, we can possess the land, we can trust God, we can, we can make use of all those things that are available to us or somebody else is going to. But God's going to, his will is going to be accomplished. And so my encouragement to all of us is let's be that generation. Let's be like Joshua and Caleb that go in. We're going to, you know, think, yeah, things are going to get difficult. Things are going to change. I, I, I'm really, I feel very strongly that things are going to change here in the United States anyways, if not worldwide, but definitely here in the U.S. But it doesn't change what you and I are to do. We're to be faithful to our calling. What's our calling? It's to reach people. We're ambassadors for Christ. And so I just want to encourage you. Don't get discouraged. If you're in a bitter situation, man, apply the cross to it. If you want to be godly, let go. And let's trust God and let's, let's, take, let's take the land. Let's possess what God has for each one of us. Amen. Why don't you guys uh, stand and I'll have the worship team come on up.